Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful right now for all your horror pop culture needs from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and well, everything in between. They also have an extensive library of podcasts to listen to, so go check that out when you're done with this episode here. Now, on to the episode. If you've been a long-time listener of the cast, you'll know I like a good legend. Well, actually, you probably do too. Or you wouldn't be listening. Anyway, there are countless types of legends, and I don't mean specifically, that's pretty obvious, but rather families of legends. We have the Greek myths, which are their own thing. We have cryptids like Bigfoot. There's urban legends like the Hookman. But then we have legends that are cemented in real life. A person so infamous in life that their tale carries over into death. And today's episode focuses on just that. This is the story of America's first female serial killer, Lavinia Fisher. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Lavinia Fisher was an interesting woman, to say the least. She was born in 1793, supposedly, as most of the records surrounding her and her legend don't quite add up. We don't know her exact birthday, nor do we even know her maiden name, location of birth, or anything about her childhood. Fisher was her married name, and we'll get to her husband in just a little bit. Despite not knowing much about her prior to adulthood, thanks to her crimes and heinous life choices, we know a lot about her grown-up years. Grown-up years? It, yeah, I, I was just trying not to use the word adult twice in the same sentence. Shut up. Lavinia married a man by the name of John Fisher, and we know that she lived near Charleston, South Carolina. The lovely, picturesque couple made a living by running a lovely little hotel called the Six Mile Wayfair House, named as such because it was located about six miles from Charleston. Clever. The hotel was owned and operated in the early 1800s, and strangely enough, men who stayed there mysteriously vanished. Poof. Gone without a trace, seemingly, anyway. It's pretty spooky, right? But surely the lovely Lavinia couldn't be responsible. No way. No how. Naturally, after enough men went missing, the authorities pieced together that the last place they were all seen was indeed the Six Mile Wayfair house, and so the investigation began. And guess what? Nothing. They found nothing. It was all just a coincidence. Investigation over. Lavinia and John were innocent. Episode over. I hope you enjoyed. Oh, wait. There's more? Ah. Of course there's more. Lavinia, by all accounts, was a charming and beautiful woman, and she was quite popular within her community. I mean, those are some pretty useful traits in life, especially, you know, when you want to kill people and throw the coppers off your scent. And that's basically what happened. But even after the investigation was dropped, men still went missing, and their last known location, you guessed it, the Six Mile Wayfair House owned and operated by none other than the Fishers. 
Now, it took a while, but the locals eventually caught on and formed a Frankenstein-like mob and stormed the castle. Well, kind of. A group of vigilantes did confront the Fishers at the hotel in 1819 to stop the supposed brutal murders that were going on there. Ah, vigilante justice. It's like, right 1% of the time? But when they do nail it, it's pretty sweet. Reports around this confrontation are apparently pretty vague, but the mob was pretty happy with what they accomplished and eventually left, leaving one man behind to stand watch, David Ross. Imagine drawing that short ass straw. I picture one something like this. Hi, we need somebody to stay back and watch these here psychopathic murderers. Any volunteers? Hey, Dave, guess what? You get the honor of watching the couple's every move. And if they try to kill you, make sure you run like the dickens back to town. It's not that far, just about six miles. Unlucky, really, really unlucky. But just how unlucky was Mr. Ross? Well, it wasn't even a full 24 hours before David was attacked and brought before Lavinia. And while he begged and pleaded for her help, she did literally the complete opposite and choked him before smashing his head through a window. That must be that southern hospitality I always hear about. Despite this brutal assault, Ross had an ounce of luck to his name after all as he was somehow able to escape. He did take that fake advice I gave in the phony monologue above and got back to town to alert the authorities. Now I'm not sure if this next part is a bit of a warped timeline or if Lavinia is just really this bizarre, but while Ross was presumably fleeing for his life, another man by the name of John Peoples stopped in at the hotel. He was traveling from Georgia to Charleston and felt he needed a little resty rest. So when he saw the Six Mile Wayfair house, he was relieved, I assume anyway. While he was apparently greeted with a friendly and toothy smile by Lavinia, he was informed that there were no rooms available. I guess she kind of had her hands full with something else at the time. Couldn't tell you what, but something, surely. She did, however, invite Peoples in for some tea and dinner. The pair chatted for a while before she left and returned with some more tea. Oh, and the news that a room had suddenly become available. How's about that? Now, John wasn't much of a tea drinker, but he didn't want to seem rude. And so while Lavinia and her husband were away, he poured the tea out. Perhaps in a potted plant or out a window or some other... Home Alone-esque escapade. Regardless of where the tea went, this is an important detail. At some point during the evening, Peoples began to feel uncomfortable. Perhaps it was the odd glances and stares from John Fisher. I know, so many Johns. Or the intrusive questions Lavinia had been asking all night. But Peoples started to think he might be the target of a robbery. His instincts ultimately proved correct as he decided to sleep in a chair in his room over the bed. The chair provided a quicker escape should something go awry, and awry it went. In the middle of the night, he heard a loud bang or crash and awoke, only to find that the bed was sucked into a deep, dark hole. Yeah, a trapdoor beneath the bed had opened and swallowed the entire thing whole. Well, that was enough for Mr. Peoples. He jumped from the window in his room hopped on his horse and rode off into the starry night. Once again, he alerted the police. Hell, he probably showed up at the same time David Ross did. That's gotta be a strange night for the coppers. 
but it was enough for them to finally go and arrest the couple at the Wayfair Hotel, six miles outside of Charleston. That sounds like a country song. Anywho, the couple was arrested along with two male accomplices, and the premises searched and dug up. And oh boy, did they ever find some weird shit. The place was designed to be a murder palace. It kind of reminded me of H.H. H. Holmes's place in Chicago, the way it was described and so on and so forth. I did an episode on that a while back, so go check that out too, if you haven't already. I, I'm just fishing for downloads here at this point. What they did find in the hotel was shocking. Secret passages, hidden rooms, items and valuables that could be linked back to all those missing men. A tea bag laced with some sleepy time drugs. Told you John Peoples not liking the tea was important. A mechanism that triggered trapdoors beneath beds that led to the basement. And of course, as many as a hundred remains. After all that, John and Lavinia Fisher pled guilty and the case was closed. I hope you enjoyed this epi- Oh wait, it wasn't finished. Damn, two false endings in one episode. It's gotta be a record. Of course, it wasn't over just then. The pair pled not guilty and were forced to stay in jail until their trial. Their accomplices, however, were released on bail. The trial happened in May of 1819, about three months after they were arrested, and it was short. The jury didn't think them innocent for a second and were ultimately sentenced to hang. Interesting fact, at the time you couldn't hang a woman who was married, so Lavinia thought she'd got off without such a harsh punishment. Well, remember that. The day of the hanging was interesting. John Fisher went quietly to the gallows after having a little prayer with his minister. He penned a letter that proclaimed his innocence and asked for mercy of those who wrongly convicted him. It didn't take long before his quiet and stoic demeanor changed and he started pleading with the crowd of nearly 2,000 for mercy. However, before he was dropped to his death, he did beg for forgiveness. Notice how Johnny Boy was hung first? Yeah, you know what that means. Lavinia is no longer married. Till death do his part and all that. Despite this, Lavinia showed up to her hanging wearing her wedding dress. Yeah, I guess so she could prove that she was married and they couldn't do her in? I don't know. If nothing else, she looked an absolute idiot. While her husband was relatively peaceful leading up to his death, minus a few moments right before he bit it, which is understandable, Lavinia was the complete opposite. She screamed and shouted at the crowd, blamed the local socialites for her conviction, and all around looked a bloody maniac. And if you don't believe me, before they draped the noose around her neck, she shouted to the crowd, If you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. Interesting. She then proceeded to jump off the platform herself with the noose around her throat. She didn't quite make it to the ground and ended up dangling in the midst of the 2,000 gathered to watch her die. And die she did. Some said that they had never seen such an evil stare or ice-cold sneer on anything in their lives, living or dead. Now some believe that the couple was buried at the Unitarian Church graveyard, but this is most likely false. No records show that they were buried there. It's more likely that they were buried in the cemetery near the jail for people who were not claimed by family members. And that brings us to the end of part one of our look into Lavinia Fisher, 
Yeah, it's worthy of a two-parter for sure. Her legacy in life might just be overshadowed by her infamy in death. But that's for next week. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell it's called nowadays. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so if you want a shout-out, that is the best way to do it. Also, be sure to follow along on social media on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, Facebook at HorrorShots, and on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod. Until next week.